Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. From the blackest corners of your mind, they call, pulling you deep into shadow, twisting your senses, keeping you from sleep. It's time to face your darkest fears. This is Tales to Terrify. Good evening, children of the night, and welcome. It's been the perfect combination of warm days and cool nights in these parts lately, and that means perfect hammock weather for reading books and listening to podcasts during the day, and cool nights to spend inside with a good movie or show. I have no lack of books on my to-be-read pile, but I promised myself that I'd dig back in and finally finish House of Leaves before the end of the summer. Given it's been probably a year since I last picked it up, and more like two since I started, I should probably head back to the beginning and start fresh. It's one of those novels that I've heard mentioned over and over again as one of the scariest, and I'm almost a little embarrassed to admit I still haven't finished it. That said, if you've got any recommendations to add to my summer reading list, Children of the Night, I'd love to hear them. Shoot me a line at Tales to Terrify on social media. With any luck, I'll be able to get through this and several others before the sunshine is through. I've also been finally catching up on my watching lately, too. The kiddo and I absolutely powered through the latest batch of Stranger Things and are on the hunt for something new and creepy to dig our fangs into. I love that there's no lack of horror content out there these days, some obviously better than others, but one I'm looking forward to more than most is Jordan Peele's latest, Nope. 
The final trailer just released, and I have to say I'm more intrigued than ever. If you haven't watched it, check it out, and let me know what you think. On the podcast front, we've got more news about this year's Stoker Awards nominees. The remaining nominated stories for this year are in the works here at Tales to Terrify, including this year's winner, and we'll be sharing those with you sometime in the coming weeks. Special thank you goes out to Meredith Morgenstern, our fiction editor, and Anna Taborska, one of this year's nominees, for helping make this second batch happen. So stay tuned. You won't want to miss it. But don't worry. We won't make you hold your breath. We've got a fresh terror just waiting in the shadows for you, ready to sink its claws in right now. Our story this evening comes from Harley Carnell. Harley Carnell lives and writes in London, England. His fiction has been published, or is forthcoming, in Riptide Journal, Confrontation, and Leetro, and he has had work performed on the No Sleep podcast. Children of the Night, join me for Harley Carnell's The Eternal Return, a Tales to Terrify original. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN.
The heat was swarming around him. The fan was somewhere in his loft, but that would only swirl the stale, dry air around, where it would mingle with the remnants of next door's barbecue. He tried another position, flipping onto his side so that the empty bed stretched out before him. From this angle, the folds in the sheet rippled like waves. How many hours had he spent alone to contemplate these images, making rivers out of the ceiling cracks, transforming the undulating dust into ash falling at the end of the world? Then, eruption! First, his doorbell. Then its reverberation. The echo of the doorbell as it traveled again and again through the walls of his... imagination, surely. That couldn't have been the actual doorbell. He swiveled around, meeting the gaze of his alarm clock, squinting at its red numbers, stark against the black of the room. It proclaimed quarter past one in the morning, earlier than he thought, but still too late for the doorbell to be ringing. Yes, he must have imagined it. He slalomed in and out of consciousness when you were exhausted. He remembered those road safety adverts. Someone driving on a deserted road one moment, the next a screaming child painted chalk white by his headlights, screech of child and brakes commingling. Micro-sleep, it was called. He had been asleep, he had been dreaming, but was now awake. The theory comforted him, but began to rust when oxygenated by reason. If the doorbell hadn't rung, then what was the ringing in his ears? He was mired by indecision, until he decided to stay where he was. If the doorbell rang again, then he could get up. If it didn't, then he had imagined it, or the person had gone away. In either case, the outcome was the same. He didn't need to get out of bed. He turned back onto his other side, the bed warm again, and tried to sleep. Last night, he had dismissed the doorbell as a dream. While that might have made sense then, he couldn't do it now. The doorbell had definitely rung. Someone was outside, wanting to come in. He turned to the alarm clock. Not only early in the morning, not only one, but one fifteen, the exact same time as last night. Maybe he could leave the doorbell again. After all, he was under no illusions. He knew what a doorbell ringing at one in the morning signified. Doorbell ringing in and of itself innocuous enough. Doorbell ringing at one in the morning on the secluded but violent grit in the state that was all he could afford, anything but. There was nothing good that could be waiting on the other side of that door. He would not answer it. Inaction was the only action he could take. All throughout work the next day, the memory of the doorbell reverberated throughout his mind. At times he felt that he could almost hear its ringing in the distance, as if in some faraway chamber of his brain. It was there with him on the walk to work. It sat with him on the bus. It was in the staff canteen as he took his morning break. What it could not do was drown out Paul. Paul was one boss in a succession of bosses. The company they worked for used a forest as its logo. In that forest... Paul was a twig on one of the smaller trees. Yet twig or not, he outranked Martin, who would be generous in calling himself a leaf, or a fleck of soil on that leaf. 
There were people who wielded whatever minor authority they had like a sword, small people enlarged by a job title. Paul was not like this. With almost everyone, he was laid back and generous. You'd struggle to find someone less authoritative or oppressively managerial. With Martin, however, it was the opposite. Paul didn't like him. I took every opportunity to call him out on some mistake, or pedantically enforce a rule it was obvious he didn't care about. His shyness annoyed Paul, as did his awkwardness. But Martin knew, too, that he was a little intimidated. The phrase, it's always the quiet ones, didn't exist because it was always the quiet ones. It existed because of people's fear of quiet people. They disquieted them. Solitude, silence, these all screamed of things to hide, of covert, malign intentions. Paul prayed for any opportunity to pick on Martin and then prayed on it when it emerged. This is the third time today that you've made a mistake on these figures. I mean, it's just simple data entry. Is everything all right? There was nothing sympathetic about the question. Yes, said Martin. Fine. I'm sorry. Again, there was no compassion, as Paul said. You look exhausted. Have you been sleeping properly? An answer seemed to bubble up somewhere in the recesses of his consciousness, but then sunk out of reach. Well, whatever it is, you can't let it affect your work. If this happens again, then I'll have to issue you a warning. Martin was duly warned. He managed to push the doorbell to the side of his mind for the rest of the day. To deal with the other distracting factor, his exhaustion, he drank two cups of coffee, both crawling with sugar and milk. Whenever the memory of the doorbell rang in his head, he ignored it. One fourteen came, and he was lying awake. One fifteen came, and the doorbell rang. Despite anticipating this all night, it came as if unexpected. He was as stupefied, as clueless about what to do, as if it had never happened before. Perhaps it was because of this that he was able to get out of bed and rush into his hallway. Were he thinking rationally, or had he planned ahead, everything would have been screaming at him to stay where he was. In that parallel universe, the chorus of voices in his head would have anchored him to his bed. In this universe, he was now in the hallway. His flat's front door had three glass panels, two on either side of the door, one above it. From these panels came the hall's only light, as the pale orange streetlight of the estate refracted through the glass. The light cast shadows, he saw this, stretched out before him. And then he saw another one, the person who had rung the doorbell. The shadow seemed too thin and elongated, and something told Martin that this had little to do with the refractory powers of the glass. To Martin it seemed more of a stencil than a reflection. He would go to open the door and would see something tall and thin and stretching seemingly ever upwards in front of him. That was nonsense, of course. What he was faced with was something real, not this fantasy. Someone who had rung his doorbell at 1.15 in the morning and who was still there. They were there long enough for Martin to have walked into the hall and for Martin to have stood there waiting for them. They did not wait any longer, though. The shadow shortened and fattened as they went away, and Martin found himself crumpling into the wall in relief. 
Sleep had been snatching at him. At work, he managed to stay awake through a cocktail of energy drinks and sheer determination. Coffee was no longer enough. He needed the nuclear greens and Atlantic blues of the energy drinks to keep him alert. Once he was home, when their effects were dissipating, he struggled to stay awake. The whole evening was a long haze. He could never be quite sure when he was or wasn't conscious. Dinner didn't work. He had planned for it to galvanize him, to give him energy, but it did the opposite. Wasn't digestion supposed to hinder sleep? Juices flowing, heart racing. You were kept up all night as your body tried to cope with the onslaught of food. Didn't every insomniac's guide instruct you not to eat a large meal before bed? But his tiredness went beyond that. His exhaustion transcended anything biological. What it was all leading up to was one fifteen. At one o'clock, he was completely awake. He was still exhausted. His body was dragging him down like clothes wet from the sea, but there was no chance of him sleeping. Then the doorbell came again. The little energy he had carried him into the hall. Through the glass, he could see the figure once more. It was so still that it was conceptually difficult to imagine it ever moving enough to ring the doorbell. He could see it being there. He could see it standing behind the door. But he could not picture it moving its arm to ring the doorbell. He stood there in the hall for a number of seconds. Number was all he could commit to. He had no idea how long had actually passed. Then after a time, the thing behind the door disappeared. It was not solely the doorbell keeping him awake. He was too tired to be kept up by its sound alone. Every Thursday morning, the bin men came to collect the rubbish right outside his bedroom window. The beeping of their truck, their conversation, the sound of the rubbish bins being slammed into the truck, these were all louder than the doorbell. No, it was the worry that was keeping him awake. There were two ways this worry would be assuaged. Best case scenario was, of course, that the doorbell stopped ringing. But as it had rung the last three nights in a row, regardless of his not answering, he knew that that was not likely. The solution then was simple. If he wanted peace of mind and the sleep it would entail, he needed to answer the door, or, if not answer it, at the very least find out who was on the other side. The thought of the evening ahead galvanized him. By this point, he was subsisting entirely on nervous energy. He knew how unsustainable doing that was. But he also knew that, without it, he would not be surviving. It was his oxygen tank. When 1.15 came, he was in the hall. When the doorbell rang, he was by the door. By all means, he should have been in bed. He was too exhausted to still be awake. But the oxygen tank kept on pumping and he remained standing. It spoke for him, too, when he called out into the darkness of the hall. Hello? His voice was quiet, but against the silence it was pronounced. Like the doorbell, it reverberated throughout the hall, bouncing around and coming back to him like a chorus of voices. Cold call companies will ring lines to see if they are dead. If you answer, your new life has begun. You will be called not only from them, but the other companies who they've sold your information on to. To whoever was on the other side of the door, Martin had suddenly been born. 
had answered their call. And they now knew that he was alive. He saw the shadow move as they began knocking loudly on the door. Can I help you? Martin tried to call out, but his voice was drowned by the knocking. More knocks, and then the door's handle turning. The handle he had spoken with his landlord about. The handle that was more in place in a bedroom than the entrance to a flat. Although, what was this flat other than a glorified bedroom? Martin managed to get some words out through his fear. Somewhere among them might have been police. After a few more seconds of the handle being pulled, there was silence. The handle was returned to the top, and the shadow disappeared. Once more, he crumpled. Whoever was knocking on the door, they had consistency. They not only came at the same time, but left after the same amount of time. True, he never heard footsteps, but they did leave. He was safe now. All the day's exhaustion, all the week's exhaustion, took over, and the nervous energy drained from him. He barely had enough will or energy to make it to bed. Once there, he fell onto the covers and into a short, sleepless sleep. Sometimes, when he didn't sleep, he was in a haze. Rather than walk around exhausted, zombie-like, he became more like a ghost, floating around, moving in ecstasy. He had had sleepless nights before, where the day after he had almost glided through the hours. Today was different. This could happen after one night. It could happen after one night, especially when he was able to sleep the following night. But this was more than one night. The accumulated nights were piling on top of him. His snowstorm had begat an avalanche. On the bus to work, it took all his effort to stay awake. The lights above the advertisements became small suns, spraying and spitting out shards of light. As he covered and squinted his eyes, people must have thought that he was in the midst of a bad hangover. When juddering through the crowd at the train station, he struggled to distinguish people. They blurred into one. A woman's black coat and a man's briefcase merged and conjoined, so that he saw no gap between them. It was as if the air between them had been sucked out and they were pulled together. An image came out to him dreamlike, of meat in a bag sealed. Those vacuum packs where all the air was drained out, which allowed you to store food, or with clothes, too, where seemingly immutable matter was compressed and condensed like a gas into smaller constituents. It became dreamlike because he was dreaming. He needed to sleep, and until he did, the dreams and reality would commingle like shuffling cards. Before arriving at work, he grabbed himself an energy drink. It had a blue that was almost luminous and which screamed artificiality, sugar, and caffeine. In the office toilet, he doused himself with the freezing water from the taps and ran some through his hair, double-checking that no one was coming into the bathroom. He then slapped himself a few times in the face. The face that looked back at him in the mirror was pale, the eyes wide, the skin pink where he had hit it. For a second, he laughed to himself at the thought of someone covertly watching him. If they had seen him from the distance without the context, it would probably have looked insane. Rachel came over to him around ten. Good old Rachel. She liked him as little as everyone else, but was nice enough to at least try. 
There were some people who were just kind, decent people, and she was one of them. When handing him the report she needed filing, she asked if he was all right. You look wet, she said. He tried to smile, but what came out was probably not very humorous. I was a bit hot, he said, and Rachel smiled politely. He knew ultimately that he never helped himself. Things like this did nothing to alter people's perceptions of him as a weirdo. Usually, he would have been distraught at the missed opportunity, the open goal to make casual conversation. Today, he was too tired to have emotions about anything. But later, he knew the disappointment and self-loathing would cascade onto him. Nothing non-narcotic could have kept him awake when he came home, and he literally crashed onto his bed. It was the weekend now, so he could afford to sleep. Afford to sleep, at least, until 1.15. Slightly before then, he woke up. He was so tired that he couldn't move. Initially, he thought he was paralyzed. He recalled alien abduction stories. Someone waking up to a bright light and sensing a presence in their room. Trying to respond to that presence, they found themselves anchored to their bed. Their bodies cement when they had fallen asleep, but now hardened concrete. He was not paralyzed. He could move, and each move was fire. When quarter past came, he was in the hall. He heard the doorbell ring and looked at the door. Before quarter past, he had been drowsy. He had brought a chair into the hall and had been resting on it. Now he was fully awake. No amount of cold water on his face could have made him this alert. On the other side of the door was not one but two people. He could see their shadows through the glass. He blinked a few times to check it wasn't just the tiredness birthing another person from a single shadow. With his vision clear, it was confirmed. This was definitely two people. Then the knocking started. He was too frightened to say or do anything. There was no chance of him repeating his hello of last night. Knocking for another few seconds... Then a furious tugging and pulling on the handle. Then, after another few seconds, they were gone. He slid back into the chair and might have slept. There was a daze, too, that came with too much sleep. Once they had left early Saturday morning, he had spent the majority of the day in bed. During his waking periods, he knew that he was sleeping too much, but had no inclination to wake up. What would he wake up to, after all? What carrot was there for him to chase? Another Saturday in front of the television? Washing the dishes or doing his laundry? By the time he did wake himself, he was so awake that he felt tired, although this was in part because of the hunger and the dehydration. His body, too, was spent. All the lying had engendered an enervation in his muscles and bones. He knew that muscles could not atrophy in such a short time, but he felt as if that was exactly what had happened. Arms like spaghetti, legs like jelly. These clichés were not only unavoidable, but they became almost profound. It was hot, too. If clichés were inadequate because they were overused, then hot was inadequate because it was insufficient. You could be hot walking up some stairs, hot in a particular stuffy jumper. This was not that. His body felt warm to the touch. 
He remembered beach holidays as a child, spending the whole day in the sun, the baking sun, as they said in the picture books he read, and coming home feeling that he had actually been baked. Putting his hand to his arm and seeing the spectral impression of his hand seared onto his red skin, holding his fingers a few centimeters away from his arm and feeling heat radiating up at him. Again inadequate, but the closest analogy he had. He ate some food, but wasn't able to keep it down, nor was he able to keep his nausea down. Long after he had eaten, he was still feeling nauseous and occasionally vomiting. Long after he had nothing left to vomit up, he still retched. Soon all that was going into the toilet was his own bile and filth and insides. This had to be the tiredness, just like it had been the tiredness a few weeks ago when he had had those headaches. Recalling them made him feel more nauseous. He remembered the drilling into his skull, his vision being sliced into a kaleidoscope. The words on his work computer slowly morphing into hieroglyphics, the white screen gnawing at his eyes. The memories were displaced by anxiety about the ever-impending 115. When it came, the doorbell rang. When it did, he called out. His voice was weak, and he could barely hear it. They could, however. Sound waves had vibrated and reverberated and penetrated. They had cut through the air and sliced through the silence. They had collided with the bell that, echoing against the wall, was still ringing. After he spoke, there was knocking. The door handle was tried again. He had meant to inform his landlord of it. Since when had he been this forgetful? He heard shuffling, and felt fresh nausea rise up when he heard it. That shuffling, that movement, had to belong to more than two people. With the little strength he had, he walked towards the door. There was no need to be quiet. They already knew he was there. He couldn't look through the letterbox, because they were too close to the door. Craning his head instead, he looked through the glass panel. His flat was on the second floor of an estate block. Widthwise, there was only enough room for one person to fit outside his door. Lengthwise, though, it stretched out almost into eternity. With his poor eyesight, worsened by this exhaustion, that was almost literally the case. When he looked through the glass, he saw a long line of silhouettes and shadows. For a moment, he regretted the glass's opacity. He wanted to be able to see them. Then he corrected himself. It was everything from a blessing to a salvation that he was blind. Standing glacially still, he closed his eyes and waited for them to leave. Even as early as Sunday, he knew he had no chance the next day. Work was a no-go for him, but staying home was a no-go, too. He needed to work. Any excuse and Paul would exorcise him from the company. Ignoring the nausea, he forced himself to drink and eat. When he couldn't keep it down, he forced himself to drink more. The headache had returned, too, perhaps because of the dehydration. The whole day seemed a slow march to 1.15. Throughout the day, how he felt fluctuated. There were never times when he felt great, but he did sometimes reach the plateau of feeling able to cope. He thought about seeing a doctor, but knew it was unnecessary. He was not ill. He was just tired. He was tired because of the doorbell waking him up and his anticipating it keeping him awake. 
This was nothing to do with his health. He was perfectly healthy. Sure, there could be something lurking within him. To the layperson, the machinations of your own body were as mysterious as the deep sea. Blood swirling, liver regurgitating impurities, food immolated in acid, the atoms and electrons and quarks to whom your body was a universe moving ever silently throughout you. There could be something wrong with him. But if there was, this wasn't its manifestation. If you were tired all the time without reason, that was grounds for concern. But he knew why he was tired. In another universe, there was a version of him living without the doorbell. Same history, same physiology, same conditions, but no doorbell. That person was not currently suffering this. That person was not ill now. That person admittedly would have had the headaches from a few weeks ago. He conceded that. But he would argue headaches were natural. He was at a computer all day. He had a stressful job. He had a small flat. Perhaps the bright lights in the enclosed space were making his head hurt. No, he was fine. At 1.14, he was standing by the door, feeling well enough to do so. At 1.15, the doorbell did not ring. Instead, there were four or five sharp, loud knocks. Hello? he called through the door. Like touching a spider's web, his voice engendered a flurry of activity. Whomever was on the other side began to bang on the door and tried to pry it open. What do? Who are? He couldn't finish a sentence, nor was there any answer or attempt to answer. He collected himself, cleared his throat, and said, Who are you? I'm calling. His voice was drowned out by even louder knocking, and the sound of the handle almost being wrenched up and down. He began to panic wondering what to do, but then the sound stopped. They had left and the silence returned. There was no way that he was fit for work, but there was no way that he was going to miss it either. If he had floated through the other day, he stumbled through this one. By one o'clock, it was apparent that he was not going to make it through the day. That he had managed to progress this far was something of a minor miracle. Paul displaying no sympathy for this, told him to go home. Come back when you feel better, he said. We'll have a talk in my office when you get back. I'm not ill, Martin said. I'm just tired. I just need a good night's sleep. Even through all his tiredness, Martin could plainly see the disgust on Paul's face. You could sometimes be too paranoid about things, but Martin knew that the talk in Paul's office would be at best about a disciplinary. At worst, a dismissal. It was cold outside, but he was warm inside. He felt the heat circulating through him all day. He was in and out of sleep as rapidly as blinking. At times, it was hard to tell when he was awake. At times, it was hard to tell if he had ever been awake. Literally speaking, he was either awake or asleep, but that was not how he felt. He felt that he was both awake and asleep at the same time. Although, surely, the act of contemplating this meant that he had to be awake? Not necessarily, of course. You could reason in dreams, and wasn't this paradox? Awake and asleep at the same time, the very fabric of dreams? Then one thirteen came, and he was awake. He pulled himself to the hallway, taking a chair with him. Once he was in the hall, 
He fell into the chair, gripping onto its arms to stop himself from falling off it. The day flashed before him. How long ago he had been at work! How long ago he had been on the bus! These were weeks ago. They were both today and weeks ago at the same time. They had both happened and not happened. Although he had gotten, to be fair, the cab today, that was why the bus ride had seemed so long ago, because he had not taken the bus. He had been too tired, and had hailed a cab from the station. How long ago that, too? How long ago when he had stumbled through his front door and then crawled into his bed? There was another piece missing from the narrative. He had alighted the part where he locked the door. He had alighted it, he suddenly realized, because it had not happened. He had shut the door, but he had not locked it. He didn't look at his watch. He knew what time it was. One fifteen was approaching. One fifteen was near. One fifteen was here, and not here at the same time. He stood up and stumbled towards the door. Halfway to it, he collapsed. His body had not been able to galvanize itself. His reserves were spent, and they had no reserves. He collapsed onto the floor and saw the stars and the flashes and all the galaxies of the universe swimming around his head. He tried to blink them away, but they continued swirling. The tails and the trails and the stars swimming, the grains of sand in the desert of the night sky swarming. Somewhere high above him he heard the doorbell. His neck was anchored to the ground. His body was fastened so he could not look up. But he could still hear, first, the knocking. Then the handle being tried. The door was opened, and bright light came rushing in. He closed his eyes. When he opened them again, he was surrounded by darkness. Shadows were all around him. Wherever he could crane his neck to, wherever he could divert his eyes, were these shadows. He wanted to call out, to scream for help, but his mouth merely opened and closed like a beached fish. They stood over him now, surrounding him completely, a black hole into which he would vanish. Although Stephanie knew that Martin would have nothing in his flat, she did not refuse the landlord's offer. While they were never particularly close, their relationship was exemplary of being siblings by blood only. They were still family. She knew he had no friends who would go over, and if she didn't, it would almost be like abandoning him. When she had first heard, she had been devastated. She couldn't imagine having to go through something like that. A tumor, the doctor had told her. She couldn't remember what part of the brain she had told her, but knew that it had cortex in it. It is likely, the doctor said, that your brother would have experienced hallucinations. Obviously, we can't guarantee that. Although the erratic behavior that his colleagues indicated he was displaying at work, the fact that there was a chair in the middle of the hallway, and that your brother was found in only his underwear despite the time of year, all point to that. That was the worst element of it. Have a brain aneurysm and you drop dead immediately. Other than in your sleep, she couldn't think of a better way to go. But to have to suffer like that, she hoped that... If he had, in fact, experienced hallucinations, they were not too bad. 
Maybe in his world, he was naked and in a chair because he was enjoying a beach holiday somewhere. He had always loved those when they were children. One other thing she couldn't have said to the landlord or anyone else was that she was glad that he was at peace. Even without the tumor and the possible hallucinations, he had always suffered. He had always been lonely. She remembered him as a teenager, perpetually by himself, always worrying about stuff. What kind of a life was that? Living alone by yourself in a flat. No friends, from all accounts from his work colleagues, who she had spoken to, not even talking to people at work? At least now he wouldn't have to worry anymore. As she had suspected, there was nothing of value in the flat. Overall, he had barely anything in it at all. His possessions were as scarce as a monk's. There was one thing in the bedroom, however, that caught her eye. By his bedside, he still had the alarm clock that he'd had as a child. They had gone to the beach years earlier. Back when he was a small child, perhaps, the last time he was really happy. It was an old-style alarm clock that had red numbering and a snooze button on the top. They had seen it in a small retro shop, and their mother had bought it for him because he had loved it so much. Even more than the sea, or the rides, or the ice cream, he had loved that clock most of all. She had not cried at his death or at his funeral, but seeing that he had kept the alarm clock did make her start. She felt her eyes beginning to water. She hadn't realized that it had meant that much to him, this small alarm clock that he had still kept it. This old, small alarm clock that didn't even work anymore, stuck eternally on 1.15 a.m. That was Harley Carnell's The Eternal Return, as read by Dan Grzynski. Dan is a broadcast and audio engineer by trade and has worked on many projects for local public stations. Lately, he's been recording literary works for LibriVox, as well as Tales to Terrify, and has just finished narrating his tenth audiobook on Amazon. Thank you, Dan. Well, children of the night, the hour is late, and we've run out of tales to tell. For now. Tales to Terrify is made possible by the tremendous generosity of our supporters on Patreon and PayPal. Incredible fans like Kathy Robinson and Amanda Gottfried, whose generous support helps keep the lights on and flickering ominously. Not a supporter already? Head over to patreon.com slash tales to terrify, where you'll find all kinds of perks like ad-free and extended episodes, bonus content, and one-of-a-kind collectibles and merch packs. Every dollar goes back into this show to make it as horrific as possible, and we appreciate it so much. Want another way to support the show? 
that doesn't cost a cent? Head over to Stitcher, Podchaser, or Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star review. You'll not only put an unnaturally wide smile on our faces, but help new listeners discover our terrifying tales, too. Now you can share your love of the show out in the world with some Tales to Terrify merch. TalesToTerrify.com slash merch will take you to our Tee Public store, where we've got a great collection of creepy custom and curated designs that's always growing, so check back often. Tales to Terrify is produced by Seth Williams, Meredith Morgenstern, Andrew Gibson, and myself, Drew Sebastini, with original theme by Nebulous Entertainment. Tales to Terrify is distributed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Join us again next week as we disturb your peaceful slumber with more Tales to Terrify. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.